Hello out there. I'm Whitney. And I'm Will. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is episode 9, Captain Canuck, in which we talk about that Canadian national superhero who, admittedly, you American people probably haven't heard of. Hey guys! Uh, So this week's episode is going to be a little bit different from pretty much everything else we've done so far because we're going to do a big old dive into sort of a pet interest of mine. It's sort of vaguely about Canadian superheroes, like more generally, and specifically we're going to be looking a lot at Captain Canuck, which I'm sure none of you have heard of. But before we get to that... um, we want to talk a little bit about like what we've been reading lately and stuff like that. Just completely yep. not related to any of this Canada business. Yeah, just as a you know our little sequence, beginning sequence that we haven't yeah. made yet. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I think I've got most of this stuff. Yeah, I have not had a lot of time to um, be reading stuff lately, which I need to get back on that. Yeah, as I've mentioned before, I'm still reading through my Marvel Unlimited um, stuff and specifically Marvel Now. I've currently just been reading through, read through recently some of the Avengers books um, from that time and the and Avengers. And what time is this exactly? Like when when did these come out? Yeah, this was the 2012 Marvel Now, which actually has some really good stuff in it. And I'm going through this whole reading order I found online, um, which is going through like different waves of different groups of characters. And I've recently gotten through a bunch of Avengers related um, books, like basically the beginnings of several pretty good runs, including. Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers, which I've talked about before, if not on the podcast, at least in person with Whitney here. Two great books going through 2012 through the Secret Wars event. They're really the first Avengers books since Bendis ended his pretty long run on the mainline Avengers, and they're mm-hmm. quite good. We may we might talk about them yeah. in some capacity at some other point Entirely in the future. Possible. And there's also a couple of cool... Uh, side runs to it, including um, the pr- very well-regarded Hawkeye by Matt Fraction. And... Yes. Now that I have heard of and seen screen caps of, yeah. which is to say I've internet read it, but not actually read it. It's really good. Yeah. Each, you know, the episode, each of the episodes, each of the issues, books, I should say, <laughs> each issue. Yeah. Um, it's more standalone than a lot of comics I've read, which I think works in his favor. And it's basically just Hawkeye and Hawkeye, as in Clint Barton and Kate Bishop, getting up to all kinds of... Hijinks. Hijinks was exactly the word I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> Hardly surprising. Yeah. Yeah, and... I've said it before and I'll say it again. I I haven't even read Fraction Hawkeye yet, but I, I'm pretty sure my main beef with MCU Hawkeye is that he's not Fraction Hawkeye, which isn't really anybody's fault in particular, but... I do love what I've seen of Fraction Hawkeye. For more on Whitney's beef with MCU Hawkeye, listen to our Age of Ultron episode. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. I rant a little bit. And besides that, I've read a little bit more of Jeff Johns' Green Lantern stuff, but not a whole lot of that recently. Um, I'm still kind of going through that. I haven't hit any particular, particular standout points in it, but I've only a little ways into it. Um, and also in Marvel now, I've read... The beginnings of Jason Aaron's run on Thor, God of Thunder. Oh, right. It's the stuff you were showing me. Like, or yeah. I was reading over your shoulder the other day. Yeah, that's very solid. Um, starts with an art called The God Butcher. Yeah, I liked which... it. I really liked the art style. It was less comic booky and more, more I don't know, artsy-fartsy. That's not yeah, a really good word yeah. for it's, it. But... 
Yeah, it's beautiful art, and yeah. the story is interesting in how it focuses on the elements of Thor being an actual god, which is an interesting contrast to the MCU Thor that I'm used to, which has, you know, in the MCU Thor is not a god. The Asgardians are just very powerful aliens. Who were regarded as gods. Yeah. And, yeah, a few other books, but I think those are the highlights recently. Very much looking forward to a few of the other... Now, we're very much looking forward to continuing those as well as a few of the other Marvel Now runs, particularly Young Avengers of the ones that I haven't actually already started. Mm-hmm. I've heard very good things, like very good things about Young Avengers, um, and I'm yeah, very so excited to actually read it finally. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, that particular Young Avengers. I've read the original Young Avengers, mm. but I'm looking forward to that particular iteration of the series as well. Nice. Cool. And I don't know, Whitney, do you have anything that you've been doing? I have been so behind on like life in general lately that I really have not had time to read much of um, anything except for basically like what I was reading to research this episode. Um, I, think I, I think last time, I don't even know if these episodes we recorded are going to be airing in order, but last time we recorded an episode and did the reading list thing, I mentioned that I was reading a book on... Canadian content regulations, which is actually far more interesting than it sounds. I promise you. We're going to be talking a little bit about that today. Just in brief, not even go, not going through like the whole history of it or anything, because that's way too boring for a comic book podcast. But yeah, no, so I was reading some more of that, reading a couple um, scholarly articles, including um, the master's thesis of a guy who is now a professor in the communications department at Concordia University up in uh, Montreal. So... Okay, apologies. This episode is probably going to be like more of me talking than Will because this is very much my sort of area of interest. So if you don't like the sound of my voice, apologies. You may want to skip this episode. But if you, don't like, if you don't like the sound of her voice, you're probably not listening to this podcast. That's true. That's true. But yeah, no, it's going to be a lot of probably just me trying not to ramble about stuff. I will try my best, guys. We'll see. All right. Let's not start the episode with, guys, this is going to be bad. I'm being apologetic. It's a, but you it's, don't the, to... it's the Canadian in me. <laughs> I didn't even live in Canada that long, all things considered, but they really rubbed off on me. I still sometimes say sorry like that, and Will always gives me crap for it. It's... Um, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit it's it's pretty funny. So, um, because I'm so sure that almost none of you are going to know anything about Canadian comics at all, this is going to have to be in large part a history lesson, um, but it's actually really interesting, I swear. So, there's a reason why you may not have heard about a lot of like Canadian content. You might've heard of some more recent Canadian shows like Orphan Black, especially, I think is a really famous one. But basically for a long time, Canada has had a problem where it struggles to develop its own culture independent of American culture. Like it's very much, you know how the stereotype is like Canada's the polite, cousin or whatever to America's beer-swilling... I don't know how accurate it really is, but definitely something that I think most Americans and Canadians are probably familiar with. Oh, incredibly, incredibly. So I think it's difficult... It's difficult for me to parse whether the stereotype came from this 
sort of cultural reality or whether it's like a chicken and egg situation or what. But like, regardless, there were a lot of most of the like pop cultural stuff being sent to Canada was exactly that sent to Canada from the US. We're talking like books, films, TV was being broadcast up there and stuff like that. Comics certainly were as well. Yeah, exa- although, okay. I'll, well, I'm some, assuming there, they were. Well, there's some interesting timeline stuff that I'm going to get to in a second. So, basically, the Canadian market is being flooded with American stuff. And th- this is around, like, the late 1930s. And then World War II hits, right? So, what happens is the Prime Minister at the time passes something called the War Exchange Conservation Act... It, there was some like economic rationale behind it. I am not like an economics person. I, I couldn't sum it up for you. But basically in order to like, I don't know, conserve American dollars or something like that, Canada banned a lot of US imports. There was a very diverse list of stuff that was banned. I think, funny enough, um, chocolate and caviar were included on this list. So like, and comic books as well. And the interesting thing is the... The American comic book industry was pretty young and American superhero comics were even younger because when the act, the act passed in December of 1940, right? So before the US even entered like World War II, Superman was like two years old at the time. And this was about the time that, yeah. that the first Captain America comic hit stands. So it's not as if American superheroes and the associated tropes and monomyths or whatever had been in front of Canadian eyeballs for very long. If anything, they'd been exposed more to more like, you know, detective comics, like Batman before Batman became Batman or like the shadow or something like that. Or so, I would suppose comics outside of superhero comics. As oh well. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All that to say the War Exchange Conservation Act opened some doors for enterprising Canadian would-be comic book publishers. There were, I believe, about three comic book um, studios, I guess, that sprang up in the wake of the War Exchange Conservation Act. And they were the ones who actually published the first Canadian superheroes, including the first recognizably Canadian national superhero, who's not Captain Canuck. We'll get to the guy later. These are his like antecedents of sorts. There are really two of them. There is Nelvana of the Northern Lights, who's actually like the first, not only the first Canadian national superhero who's like recognizably that, but also like pretty much the first major comic book superhero when she actually predates Wonder Woman by, I think it's just like a matter of a few months. But she's but, the first female superhero. Yeah, basically. Well, the first, at least, really significant female superhero. I guess so, yeah. Or, or I guess leading her own book she... or something like that. Point is, she predates Wonder Woman and sort of serves the same, has the same sort of significance in that sense. And Nelvana was immensely powerful. I think she was based on a character from Inuit mythology. Um, she gets her powers. I don't remember a lot of the details, but she gets her powers from like the Northern Lights and she is nigh invulnerable, I want to say. Um, so that's her. And no, I guess what I want to um, make a note of first is it's funny that um, Nelvana should be based on Inuit mythology. It's something she has kind of in common with Marvel's new Canadian character. Um, Canadian Jim Zub introduced Snowguard to Marvel's champions team. And 
snow guard, um, Amka Aliak is her name, but she, she's Inuit as well. So that's kind of a really interesting connection. It was kind of, kind of heartening to see, honestly. It was like, oh, she's following in Nelvana's footsteps, kind of. It's super cool to me. Yeah, and um, as I understand it, she has some sort of magic powers, although whether they tie into any, like, explicitly Inuit-related thing, I'm not sure either way. Yeah, didn't... I, I can't remember if you sent me this link, but I know Jim Zub posted... Some concept art. Yeah. Right, yeah. So Jim's had posted some concept art. And her for powers, Snow at Guard. least like the visuals of them are based explicitly on the Northern Lights. Yeah, so that's that's another like connection between her and Nelvana. And I think that's really, really cool. i it'll be really interesting to follow champions and see if that's I don't know, developed any further. Because I'm sure Jim Zub would know about that. I mean I'm just, yeah, I'm sure really Nelvana is Yeah. Is Nova, would Nelvana be a prominent enough character that a Canadian comic writer today would know about her much? Or is it probably more of a coincidence that I we have those relations? Pr- might be more of a coincidence, but I also wouldn't be surprised if people still knew about her in some way, shape, or form. So yeah, that's cool. The other more recognizable you know, predecessor of Captain Canuck from the World War II era would be Johnny Canuck who, much like Captain America, smashed some Nazi faces in for a few years. Although, it's it's funny, actually, Captain Connect's resemblance to Johnny Connect was entirely coincidental. Um, hmm. Richard Cumley, the um, guy who ended up creating Captain Connect, like, all the way in the 70s, like, we're fast-forwarding to the 70s here, he didn't even know that, I don't think he even knew that Johnny Connect existed until after he'd already created or I guess co-created the character. There was another guy involved in his, I guess, initial genesis, but that guy kind of pissed off to Europe for a couple of years for some sort of religious mission trip or whatever. And it kind of fell upon Richard Cumley to bring Captain cool. Connect to life. So, like... And so are we jumping forward immediately to the secret origin of Captain Canuck? Sort of. We're sort of jumping forward, but first I really want to emphasize the role of... Canadian content regulations in the various iteration, the emergence and then subsequently various iterations of Captain Canuck. So large scale was happening in Canada throughout, like even, I think it was starting in like the 1920s and going on through late 1940s, early 1950s, stuff like that, is that there's an anxiety that's growing about Canada's lack of a defined national culture. There is some growing concern about that. But this specifically was at the time? Yeah, in the in this sort of broad fifty year period I'm talking about between like nineteen twenties and nineteen seventies. I'm skipping over a lot of detail, but it's detail you guys don't need to know unless you want to read this really dense book yeah. I've been trying to get through. Through the bulk of the twentieth century then. Yeah, oh it's and it's still going on today, honestly. Sure. But um the thing is the people who are having these concerns and trying to put together like government commissions and like sources of funding for artists and stuff like that, they're very much the sort of elite class. It's very, you know, straight white male sort of thing, rich dudes. And eventually they're... Um, it's interesting. The patrons of the art are as often what as often was, I guess, yeah. throughout history, the wealthy uh, people. Yeah, exactly. And specifically, I mentioned earlier that there's this comparison that keeps getting made between America and Canada, where America is like, you know, the beer swilling boorish cousin and Canada's a polite cousin or whatever. That same sort of duality comes into play in the rhetoric that these guys are using. Specifically, they're worried about Canadian citizens consuming culture that they, these people 
these rich white dudes see as, you know, base and tasteless or whatever. What they want to do is create more refined Canadian content for Canadians to consume. So when like I have a mental image of a like bearded lumberjack almost, (laughs) except with a top hat and a teacup and monocle or something. That's a very odd image. I don't even know what to say to that. I'm just gonna like set it aside. So cut that part out of it. I'm I'm trying to conjure the amusing mental image of like Canadian stereotypes combined with an like British airs of propriety. No, but, but like that's that's another thing that's really important to emphasize. These sort of wannabe tastemakers and people who eventually do become tastemakers, they're very much English Canadian. They're very much focused on the English speaking, British descended aspects of Canadian culture, and there's not nearly as much emphasis on the very eventually vocal, like French Canadian contingent, like primarily in Quebec. Or um, the indigenous yeah. uh, first nations yeah absolutely like they're the like the massey commission for example the first i guess formal commission that was created to assess the need for canadian culture and sort of promote it in various venues avenues they're very much leaving out a lot of people like their definition of canadian culture is not super inclusive and that is the one thing that has really annoyed me about this book i've been reading so far it will refer to like indigenous content indigenous talent or whatever but it took me like several like tens of pages at least to figure out that indigenous in that particular context in that particular book does not necessarily mean and probably in most cases doesn't mean first nations so that sort of like slippage really I don't know, it irked me once I figured out that they didn't actually mean cultivating content from First Nations people, which I don't know why I thought they would, because this is like the 1920s and 30s we're talking about. I want to say, I don't know if I'm remembering things right, but eventually the result of the Massey Commission was at least the establishment of the Canada Council for the Arts. I want to say it was a ripple effect of that. And the Canada Council for the Arts actually still survives today. Like I've seen their logo on stuff um programs like when i was still living in canada i would see like their name plastered all over things so they're still alive today they still survive and the cbc the canadian broadcasting corporation they do they have like at least one tv channel i don't know how many i didn't watch much tv while i was up there and radio especially like they the cbc was very much a battleground for like canadian content and there were all sorts of regulations saying oh, you have to broadcast actual Canadian stuff. Um, and there were really nebulous, I think, standards for taste so far as this Canadian content went. Mm. So you had to broadcast like Canadian content during a certain number of hours. And I want to say they specifically said peak listening hours had to have Canadian content rather than the more lucrative American content that advertisers were more likely to flock to. There was a lot of economic jockeying around, a lot of math that I probably don't understand. But like what I really want to highlight because we'll be coming back to this duality all over again is the idea that American culture and anything American in general is somehow again base while Canada is somehow much more refined although the mass the attitude of like the Massey Commission and the it's like progenitors is it's really curious to think about in this respect because they kind of think of Canada as you know so much high and mightier than the US or whatever but they're also worried about the impressionability of Canadians at the time. So they're like, oh my gosh, Hmm. if Americans keep feeding them content, they'll become just like Americans. So 
Canadians' culturedness is not innate, I guess, which is really interesting to me, and I'm not quite sure what hmm. to make of it. Interesting. All right, should we? Uh, yeah. So that's now probably get to the... yeah. That's probably enough. Um, like context as to ongoing battles about Canadian content in light of the emergence of Captain Canuck and. All right, and this is. Uh... Yeah. yeah, so... Here's Captain- the sort of history lessons you get when Whitney's uh, steering the podcast. Yeah, seriously. This is like the, this is like the theory segment at the beginning of episode two, except time's a gajillion. Sorry about that. So Captain Canuck himself did not actually pop up until 1975. And like I said, he was technically co-created, but primarily, you know, shepherded to existence by this guy called Richard Cumley. And originally, Captain Canuck is basically like Popeye, but a superhero. He pretty much just, he gets whatever like enhanced powers he has, like strength and agility or whatever from like a good diet and exercise. That's very Popeye. And it's, it's funny. Does he like chug a can of maple syrup and get? (laughs) No, it's not like that. But the, the comics literally say, oh, he eats healthy and exercises a lot, so he's a superhero. So it's never, like, a sequence of transformation, like with Popeye, but that's... But and kids, if you eat right and exercise healthy, you can be a superhero, too! Yeah, and it's... Yeah, I guess at least they're trying. Yeah. So the thing about that is it's pretty obvious that that particular sort of explanation for Captain Canuck's worthiness, almost? I don't even want to say powers, because he's not necessarily more powerful than the average person, but worthiness more like is that Richard Cumley is actually Mormon. And that definitely Mm. had an effect on his, not only conception of the character, but I guess his conception of the ways in which his character would specifically reflect Canadian-ness. Interesting. Yeah. So like, it's definitely, it's very clear that Captain Canuck in his original form comes from this interpretation of the Canadian national consciousness as super like clean cut and conscientious and vigorous and stuff like that. And there's actually, it's funny, there's this other, there's this article that I was reading to prep for this by Ryan Edwardson, the same guy who wrote the Canadian content book. And I'm just going to read this particular sentence because it just really sums up this stereotype or like aspirational image of Canadianness very well. But there are some, there are some also like in really interesting bits to it. Tom Evans, a Mountie recruited into the Canadian International Security Organization, was of British descent, clean cut, strong and stocky, part, and this is, this is a quote, mind, Indian blood, bilingual, and an ardent nationalist, a suitable candidate to protect Canada. A candidate. Oh my god. So there's a lot going on in this quote alone. So like, honestly, I feel like we should just, or I should just unpack that. So shout the, out to Mounties. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. That's like the most visibly Canadian thing about Canuck other than the giant like maple leaf he wears on his chest. So, and it's interesting to me that Chapter House, we'll get to Chapter House more in a bit, but when Chapter House rebooted him, they didn't actually keep the bit where he's a Mountie. That's kind of interesting to me because Mounties are so visibly Canadian. It does feel almost stereotypical though. Yeah. Like if you have to pick somebody with elite Canadian military or police experience, you just pick Mounties because that's the one that everyone's going to recognize as Canadian. Yeah, basically. So British descent. So we're seeing the, you know, English Canadian um, exclusionism, I guess, almost right away. 
uh, the the part quote Indian blood thing is and they're talking about because indigenous peoples and in, I guess in Canada. yeah so there's this admittedly this is not something I necessarily know a lot about but I've read I read a really interesting paper once about um, various comics in which Captain America was Native American and basically sort of the theoretical underpinning of that was was by Chad Barber if I remember correctly but his theoretical underpinning of that was that these superhero comics use Indianness in a way to telegraph a particular kind of masculinity. Interesting. Yeah, sort of. And probably racist, but interesting. And defi- definitely racist. But I guess a masculinity that's more, more rugged, almost more allowed, or almost allowed to be more wild in a sense. Which again, incredibly like racist. There's a lot to unpack there and i'm probably not equipped to unpack it all the way like at all yeah, but yeah yeah so it's, it's like it's a weird balance that comely is trying to strike here it's like you've got he's a british descent host so he's very much you know english canadian yada, yada, yada. but he has to stocky, yeah. like it says yeah, he has to have a little bit of native american ancestry in him to sort of access that masculinity is perceived as more virile i guess Almost. I could see it as also. It's, a, it's weird. I could see it also as almost establishing a deeper connection to the country in the sense that the ancestry of that character is more tied to the country than somebody who's of entirely European descent. Maybe. Which I, also. I don't is, know. Maybe, you know. Maybe it's more about like being connected to nature or some. Yeah. Woo woo. I mean, stereotypical. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that at that time anybody was really doing it in a way that was really respectful to First Nations people. No. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that weird balance that I think Comley is trying to shake, and you also get that mention of him being bilingual, which is definitely not English and some First Nations language, absolutely not. It's no English and French. So you get that nod to French Canadianness, but at the same time, the mm-hmm. character is very squarely situated in almost the same tradition of more clean-cut English Canadianness that the Massey Commission and other similar yep. rich white dude tastemakers of the Canadian content battles wanted to propagate through Canadian culture. And this is something that changes a lot when he's rebooted. Is it with Chapter House primarily that he's rebooted? There are various incarnations of him throughout his rather short publication history, and we're we're getting to that. So I'll talk through them. Um, but I mean, there's not there's not too terribly much to talk about regarding the various like iterations of Captain Canuck, primarily because he has a really spotty publication history. See, the flip hmm. side of the War Exchange Conservation Act, which sort of enabled the Canadian comic book industry to arise in the first place, was that when the war was over, the act was no longer needed and American comic books came flooding back into the market and it had been costly for these Canadian companies to make comic books in the first place. So they all folded. Even like this first run of Captain Canuck only went for like three issues in 1975, was rebooted in 1979 and was modestly successful then but it didn't it it doesn't have nearly the same publication hmm. track record that like any american like especially big two marvel or dc comic book has like it has been so much more sporadic than that and i think the sporadicness of canadian publishing in general sort of continues to this day i had i was taught i've talked to people in the book publishing industry and it basically 
that industry basically survives on government funding. Like it would not be alive without can, like the Canadian government money. So there were two more people besides Tom Evans who donned the mantle of Captain Canuck. There was Darren Oak from 1993 who like, there were a few fairly significant things about his run. The, he had a quote native Canadian friend. So there was some actual like indigenous representation in there, which is pretty cool. And they also in- infiltrated an explicitly white supremacist organization. So that's, I don't know, that's pretty pointed. That's, hmm. I think that's cool. I would really like to read those actually. Yeah. Um, um, was it a real life white supremacist organization? Or I, don't just a fictionalized... be- I don't believe so. I believe it was fictionalized as was the town that Darren and his friend Daniel Blackbird went to in order to infiltrate this group. It was the fictional town of Lucyville, Alberta. And the other the other thing that I find interesting about Darren Oak is that the world domination conspiracy that um, Darren discovers is led by his brother. And to me, that seems like it might have provided some inspiration for a plot line in Chapter House's reboot, fast forwarding to 2015, very briefly. Like, you, you read that, you remember yep. like the yeah tom tom evans was Canuck in that run. yes yes yeah yes. and, and he has a brother own. named michael evans and i don't know the tom evans is mentioned to have a brother in the 1970s comics but that the parallel between darren and nathan oak and tom and michael evans in this for captain connect reborn was darren oak's book versus chapter house that seems like a stronger parallel to me so i would be interested to i don't know, investigate whether that would have been the case interesting yeah so that's that's pretty much all you need to know about Darren Oak. So and then there's one more, and I actually managed to get a hold of this book from I believe 2004, um, Captain Canuck Unholy War. And this was with the David Semple as yes. Captain Canuck. Yeah, and interestingly, I don't remember whether Darren Oak was. I don't. I want to say Darren Oak was not also a Mountie like original Tom Evans, but I could be wrong about that. David Whatever. Semple was. He was part of, or he was part of the RCMP, Royal um, Canadian Mounted Police. Yeah, but interestingly, David Zumpel was out in Vancouver, like the Vancouver area, and like a lot of this. Hmm. There's an, there's another sort of aspect to the whole debate as to what constitutes Canadian identity, and I, so I TA'd a class during grad school about performance and performativity in which one of the topics of discussion was Canadian identity. So I had to grade about 75 papers analyzing ways in which Canadian identity was performed in various things. And one of one of which was the music video for Drake's started from the bottom. Drake is from Toronto, in case you guys didn't know. So one of the sort of lingering questions that grading those 75 papers left me with was, is there a difference between Toronto identity and Canadian identity as a whole because Canada's freaking huge honestly there's so much to it especially since Pierre Trudeau in the 1970s embraced the doctrine of like multiculturalism and all that I'm not and sure that sorry what so where does this tie from simple being what, what in Vancouver I'm, yeah what I'm saying is I feel like a lot of times Toronto identity is taken to mean Canadian identity as a whole and I'm not sure how accurate it is to have Toronto represent all of Canada, even though the metro area has a lot of Canada's population. And you were you were living in the yes, metro I was. Area I've never been out further west than Hamilton, which is unfortunate. I'd like to change that, but I was immediately like intrigued to see that David Semple is out in British Columbia because just, that's just not really something I saw a lot in. 
the prompts for these papers. Like nobody really talked about Vancouver identity or British Columbia as a province or anything like that. It was, it was like Toronto or Toronto or nothing almost like there was a huge emphasis on specifically Toronto in these Canadian identity papers. I know there's a lot with Quebec. Was that come up at all? The, Quebec is an interesting case um, because Quebec has traditionally been home to a very healthy, what's normally called a separatist movement, but apparently the people who subscribe to it prefer the term sovereignist. And it goes back to that divide between English Canadians and French Canadians. Like, I've never been to Quebec, but so far as I can understand it, the case for sovereignty for Quebec has just revolved around it having a culture that's very distinct from the rest of Canada. Right. So, and there were actually, I don't remember, I, I know I Wikipedia'd the October crisis, which I believe happened in the late 60s or early 70s under Pierre Trudeau as prime minister, actually. I don't remember all the details about that, but I would recommend looking that up. Like, it has almost gotten violent a few times. Like, the um, a particularly huh. violent faction of Quebec separatists or sovereignists actually left bombs and mailboxes around. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and kidnapped, I believe, the prime minister. Like, the assistant prime minister. Somebody high up in the government. Like, somebody died as a result of this crap. It was... Oh, boy. It was intense. So, and that actually, I might as well mention another really interesting thing about Chapter House at this juncture that was kind of hinted at in Tom Evans's earliest comics, but not really. Some of the earliest Captain Canuck comics would have extended sequences of people talking in French with no translation provided, which delighted French Canadian readers to no end. So it was very much like almost a deliberate effort to include French Canadian-ness in this comic book representation of Canadian identity, which is cool. Sure. So you remember in Chapter House, we have that assassin whose like, call sign in the field is literally Quebec. Yeah. K-E-B-E-C. Yeah. That's how she spells it. And she, oh, she's like a sniper. Um, yep. And she wears, she's got like the blue and white fleur-de-lis. Yeah. Yeah. There's uniform. a fleur-de-lis motif like worked into her uniform. And there's a very extended sequence in Aleph when she's been injured and she's trying to like psych herself up to get through the mission or whatever. And she's talking to herself in French and there's no translation provided. So that was a cool connection I made. But she's not, she's not the only superhero in the chapter verse who has donned the fleur de lis, which is very specifically a Quebec symbol, as her sort of superhero insignia. Do you remember the Agents of Pact comic book that I had you read? I vaguely remember it, yeah. Yeah, well, Agents of Pact is another chapter verse thing. is focusing on an all-female team. The head of Pact, a woman named Manon Deschamps, if I'm remembering correctly, she was actually formerly a superhero known explicitly as Fleur de Lis from like the 1970s. So the fact that the chapter verse has not one but two explicitly French-Canadian, explicitly like Quebec-evoking superheroes, that's pretty awesome to me. I really, I really like that. I'm excited to see where they go with those specifically. Kind of channeling um, different, you know, going beyond the simply like having a Captain Canuck representing all of Canada and having yeah, them, like, exactly, sort of exactly. Of various yeah, and something things. else interesting about Aleph. I guess we're segueing to that anyway. We might as well like start yeah. talking about. Should we that. just go just to the overall chapter yeah, house? Yeah, definitely. We're we're getting there anyway. Um, another thing that I find interesting. Sorry, I'm like shifting about Aleph specifically is that. It almost personifies, in a way, the difference between Toronto versus the rest of Canada in the sense that the action is very much split between 
Tom Evans and the um, Equilibrium team. Equilibrium is sort of the big shield equivalent. In, I want to say it's either Northwest Territory or Yukon Territory. I almost, I have the book somewhere around here. I almost want to get up and check. Right. Somewhere further north in the more rural yeah. areas. Of the yeah, desert. exactly. In like the oil sands. So much, much more rural, much, much less urban. So there's that part of the action. And then Tom's brother, Michael Evans, is in Toronto. Like there's a whole panel with a shot of like the Toronto skyline, CN Tower and stuff like that. So the action like flip-flops between those two places. And that's a really interesting way of framing it to me. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I didn't really pick up on that as a Toronto versus rest of Canada yeah, well, I mean, thing, but you I didn't totally grade see... 75 papers on Canadian identity, so yeah. that's not really yeah. your fault. I could totally see how that would stand out to you, yeah. And I feel like Canada isn't even necessarily the only country or state, even. I feel like there are plenty of states in the U.S. where the biggest city does not exactly mirror the rest of the state. Like, I feel like Illinois is actually a good example of this. Chicago is so big and so liberal, Chicago, and the rest yeah. of Illinois is I would say New not York super... Too. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. There's New York City, mm-hmm. and the rest of New York is not completely divorced from New York City, but New York is all the way down at the southern tip of it, and further north you get a lot more farms, and there's some other cities, but New York City is so extremely Vast multicultural it. and extremely huge that yeah. there's really like no comparison between it and the rest of the state. Yeah, so... I don't know, for you American listeners who may be struggling to figure out what the heck I mean by Toronto versus the rest of Canada, that's kind of what I mean. So mm, That makes sense. So cha- basically, a little bit of background here. Chapter House, um, led by this investor and entrepreneur named Fadi Hakim, bought the rights to Captain Canuck, I want to say even as early as like 2011, 2012, 2013 the latest. And he, was, he basically formed, I believe, Chapter House in order to bring these characters back and publish them in a more recognizable comics verse sort of like what more parallel i think to what marvel's got going on because dc has like doesn't have nearly the same level of cohesion or continuity that marvel does but i think i don't think they're trying to but but i think dc does have that shared primary universe thing going on even though there's even though i think marvel is a little more concentrated in almost all of their stories being in Yeah, the that makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah, that was sort of Chapter House's initial goal with these characters. And there are others who we don't have time to cover in this episode, like uh, Northgard's another one. I'm really, I've been really wanting to read the Phantoma series for a while. And I think Phantom is another character they resurrected for this. But that's like what they're trying to do is... Like, there's a reason we've referred to it as the chapter verse thus far in the episode. They're trying to create a bigger shared universe. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. Are all the characters distinctly Canadian, or are there some who just are set in Canada but aren't necessarily explicitly Canadian? That would be something I would need to read more of Chapter House's comics in order to figure mm-hmm. out. I want to say Northgard is also pretty explicitly Canadian. He sounds like it. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, like, do you remember Marla Ritchie from the... Agents of Path comics. She was the gal who could control like the mysterious gold stuff. I remember her as a character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, feel I mean, like she's since... kind of part of. Seems like she's ends up being part of the whole Agents Canuck, of Pat. Captain Canuck associated yeah. characters. Yeah, I would agree. Like, yeah, but like I would say that since she very explicitly got her powers from this 
weird malevolent accident on this oil reserve in like far north Canada. That makes her pretty distinctly Canadian. I don't know if she's a character who got sort of brought into the present. I don't know if she'd previously existed before hmm. the chapter verse. I'm not sure. I'd have to check on that. Yeah. So as far as it comes to the chapter verse, I I guess Tom Evans is a little bit changed as a character, yeah. certainly from his original forms. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth mentioning, you know how Tom and Michael actually both got powers from this mysterious alien artifact? I think I think that is that alien artifact is actually called Aleph, if I'm remembering right. It's, yeah, Aleph is some code name that's associated with the artifact itself or yeah. the site where yeah. it is. So Tom got, like, super strength and the ability to manifest some sort of impenetrable red armor. And Michael got some sort of telepathy, I think, some form of it. Yeah, some sort of mental powers. Yeah, and it's interesting to mention that there was actually... So, like, in 1979, when Richard Cumley rebooted Captain Canuck, they sort of started from issue four. I guess they'd only gone three issues initially. And I think it was then that they scrapped the whole like clean cut Popeye Mountie thing and Mm -hmm. made him get his powers from some sort of alien artifact, bringing it more in line with American superhero tropes, which not all readers were happy about. Um, Brian Edwardson had excerpts from a few fan letters like in his paper. So there was a bit of, there are fans who were unhappy about everything. That's true. But like, it's interesting in this context, specifically with like the whole Canadian versus American, you know, it's funny. Like there's this whole idea about how Canadians don't necessarily want to define their identity in relation to the U S like that was kind of the whole point of, in a sense, the whole point of the Canadian content, you know, struggles of the 20th century, but I feel like that's a rhetorical sinkhole people tend to fall into anyway. And I'm not really sure why. I'm not really sure how we would go about getting out of it. But it's a, just, just, just a thing that keeps happening. Like I saw it in those papers I was grading. Mm, um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's, I feel like in some cases, like the cases of superheroes in particular, it might be just best to sort of milk that comparison in the sense that like, People are already considering the differences between the U.S. and Canada in this light. So let's actually look at that critically and see how, specifically see how the two nations have sort of influenced each other. Or I guess more accurately how America has influenced Canada. Because, and this should be said as well, the sort of myth of Canadian respectability in comparison to the U.S. has very often been used to downplay or dismiss some truly horrifying stuff Canada has done. Like not even just its treatment of first nations people with like residential schools and all that. Like I think like Justin Trudeau's government only just issued an apology for the horrible things that were done in residential schools very recently. Hmm. So like not just that, but also the horrible treatment of Chinese immigrants who were brought in to like build railroads out West and Canada actually had internment camps in world war two as well. So that is not just a thing that happened in the U.S. Like Canada did that as well. All right. I don't, I'll be totally honest with you. Not a whole lot really stood out to me about the stories that I did read. I think the Aleph story is interesting, but I couldn't necessarily follow it super well. Yeah, I had problems following it the first time, honestly. Yeah, it, I don't think it 
introduces all of the characters in a way that's especially clear, um, but it does establish a lot of the at least current cast of the characters, including the what seems to be Canuck's primary nemesis of Mr. Gold. Yeah, and Mr. Gold actually also made an appearance in the animated series that predated. Yeah, yeah. I I think that was like pretty much the first thing that Chapter House did. They actually, it's interesting, they crowdfunded this series and it was, it reached its goal many times over, I believe. And I was reading this interview with uh, Fadi Hakim and he said that about, what was it, like 35% of the backers were actually from the U.S. and 15% were from overseas. His conclusion from that was that there were a lot of sort of Canadian expatriates who were really eager to see Canadian content and partic- in particular a Canadian superhero. This is possible. Yeah. my I Although I also wouldn't be surprised if there were... I'm sure some of them were Just Americans who were yeah, interested just, or overseas. Hey, superhero people. stuff. Yeah, I'll exactly. Exactly. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me either, but... Um, yeah, so I just think it's really interesting that so many people wanted to see Captain Canuck make a resurgence somehow. So yeah, the animated series, I don't actually know if it's part of chapter first continuity. I would have to check on that. Um, but that's where we see Mr. Gold for the first time. So, okay, the thing about Mr. Gold is, I don't know, his plans don't... He's a very mysterious figure, and I'm never quite sure what his end game is. Did you, did you really get a sense of that from Aleph? No. I felt like there was a whole story with Mr. Gold that was either had already happened or was going to happen in the future. Which I'm not sure. What his deal was. Yeah, which I'm not sure how much of a backstory there would have been already because this was literally the first reemergence of Captain Canuck in comic book form. Like, Aleph collects the first like six issues of. Huh the rebooted run so maybe it's backstory that they revisited in later issues yeah full disclosure here we have not stayed current on the chapter verse at all um there's a yeah we're going on a relatively small subset of the chapter house Canuck yeah comics that you know, that's, a, that's the thing i should do when we actually get to canada i should hit up all these comic book stores and in canada and actually get some quality oh, that's a great idea, stuff. Yeah. yeah, no, because they would be much more likely to actually stock that stuff. Totally. Yeah, that's the other thing. We're going to be in Canada quite soon, actually, in a couple weeks. And not only is there a, are there like a profusion of comic book stores that I know of that I'm sure would stock more Canuck stuff, but there's also, I believe it's just started running. There is an exhibition at the Toronto Reference Library on Canadian superheroes specifically. So we're going to be sure to hit that up while we're there. And I think we're going to record like a, you know, sort of a summary of that and append it to the end of this episode. We'll probably try to keep it short, but it should be really interesting. So we'll have more yep. to go on with that for sure. Yeah. So I think um, the one issue I read that was particularly interesting to me was the year one yes. story, which had Tom Evans in... Afghanistan, I believe? Yeah, it was Afghanistan or another one of like the Middle East... I'm pretty sure it was explicitly Afghanistan. Yeah, it probably was, but I don't remember it exactly. And yeah. he was in whatever Canadian military thing was out there. Sort of. I, if I'm remembering the story correctly, by taking a bunch of leave off to go find his brother, and this is how he and Michael got entangled with Aleph. This is how they initially got their powers. Like, Michael went missing, Tom went to find him, somehow they both found this alien artifact, and superpowers happened 
So Tom ended up taking a bunch of time off, which in the military is not really a thing they want you to do. So because of that, because he kind of went AWOL for so long, he got shunted to what they called the problem child exchange. So he was working right. with yep. people from a variety of places, I believe, um, including Quebec, actually, Yvette Arsenault. Arsenal. I'm really bad at French pronunciation. I'm so sorry to any French Canadians who may be listening to this. Or actual French people. Yeah, true. That, that too. That too. But it was um, Quebec, though I don't know if she was going by that name at the time, who was... I think she may have been, actually. I think that may have been her call sign in the field. Yeah. And she was a sniper who was in the same unit and was suspicious of Tom Evans's actions. Yeah. He... At the time, he was... What was he doing? He was sneaking out. And using his because... impenetrable red armor to protect people. There was like some almost drug running thing going on with like yeah. copies and opium It and seems whatnot. like the military unit he was working with had some connection with some local crime or other bad thing going on. And he was going out to try to uh, stop them and try to rescue people from them. Yeah, yeah. Which was kind of an interesting... Um, yeah. And there have been sort more... of establishes some characterization for him. Yeah, definitely. His characterization is, I don't know, it kind of, it feels uncharitable to call him bland, but he's, he's really interesting in year one, I agree. And thankfully, like, more issues of the year one storyline have been released, and we just haven't read them yet. Yeah, we should um, try to read those for some Yeah, point, but in the animated series, actually, he is a lot snarkier than he is in Aleph. Like, he's yeah. really snarky. And animated kind of series starts pretty solid. Yeah, there it, for you know for the as short as it is. Yeah, it's very very short. Like oh, the end credits are actually almost as long as the episodes themselves. So like the videos are actually twice as long as the actual content is, which is kind of funny. But yeah, the considering it was crowdfunded and done probably on an absolute shoestring budget. Um, hopefully they paid the artists though. Always pay artists. It was surprisingly like high quality animation. They got Tatiana Maslany to voice one of the characters, which was really cool. She's so cool. I love her. But yeah, I will say the um, art style was very, they quite understandably did cut some corners in terms of the fight scenes. Like they didn't animate every single frame of the fight scenes and they ended up kind of looking like somebody cut out some comic book art and was like shaking it around. Yeah, but I it, think it was very stylized. It, yeah, the story was definitely pretty strong, even if we don't get a sense even from that of what the hell or who the hell Mr. Gold really is, what he wants, yada, yada, yada. I'm, I'm really interested to see if he gets more like character shading, if his end game becomes obvious or his just his motivations in general become obvious. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to see whether he has any Canadian thing going on with him. Yeah. Or if he's somehow, if his villainy is and in any way I don't want to say Canada theme because that sounds silly, but if there's <laughs> if there's any deeper connection to why he's the primary villain to this hero who is very strongly associated with Canada. Yeah, I will say beyond one, just being in Canada. One thing that I noticed on my reread of Aleph was that like the main action was set on like oil sands, right? On an oil refinery or whatever. Sure. So oil was involved. But the I don't even want to say a villain, but like a an obstacle they had to face. Like the thing that was killing people on this oil whatever was this living gold stuff. Yeah. The and stuff that, that was... Marla Ritchie eventually like 
learns to use as a superpower. Yeah, so and that like, seems like I thought that was Mr. Gold who was controlling and Yeah, see that's what I thought too, but thought. see I'm making a connection between oil and gold. Because that's I, a very old, like, rhetorical connection. I, I couldn't see say, that, yeah. yeah. Just I don't know. I, don't, I remember hearing it in, like, the friggin' Beverly Hillbillies theme song. Like, <laughs> did, you, did you ever hear the Beverly Hillbillies theme song? I feel like this like, is they strike, this I'm is not going to sing the whole thing. But, like, they strike oil in the backyard, and the really deep voice goes, Black gold, Texas tea. Literally. <laughs> I feel like so, this I don't is know, not relevant I think at that's all. why I'm making that connection. So, no, my point is I'd be interested to see if the comic takes a more almost environmentalist bent. Hmm. Like Mr. Gold is trying to, you know, mine these Northern territories of Canada for all the gold they're worth, all the oil they're worth. And maybe, I don't know, screwing over indigenous populations in the process or just like interfering with the environment or something. Yeah. Or just like bringing on global warming that much faster, stuff like that. That would be my best guess as to what his deal is. Yeah. I can see that. So, yeah. All right. And I think there's, yeah, I don't know what other topics you wanted to hit on. I think there was yeah. something interesting I saw in the modern incarnations of Captain Canuck, which I think I've also noted about modern incarnations of Captain America, mm-hmm. which is that he's not particularly driven by patriotism or nationalism, as far agree. as we can tell. You know, he wears the whole maple leaf flag thing. Yeah, he has like a maple leaf belt. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But it seems less like he's doing that because, oh, I love Canada. And more of just that's kind of the persona they gave him. And yeah. he just, you know, goes along with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we, we, like, we see that in year one, too. I think with him directly... I don't know if he's directly, like, disobeying the orders of his superiors in this he's, unit that he's in. But he's certainly, like, not doing something they would like. Yeah, and he's very much uh, kind of... That's very much a similar thing to what probably Captain America would do in a similar position. Oh, 100%. Totally. And Although it reminds I'm, me of, you know, the modern incarnations of Captain America as well, who aren't really doing it for nationalism, but are just using the nationalist-looking iconography and everything as yeah. um, kind of a shorthand for what it represents to other people. Yeah. Although, I will offer a sort of caveat with that. Canadian superheroes, like most prominently like Captain Canuck, obviously, have historically had a much less fraught relationship with the Canadian government than American superheroes have with theirs. Like, Captain America has, with a a few exceptions, which we talked about in our episode on him, been a rebel almost from the get-go. Like, he's constantly questioning the American government. And I feel like that's... Secret Empire, Civil War, yeah. Well, first Secret Empire. That's important. But that sort of rebellion and questioning, I would say is almost a much more quintessentially... American trait, or it's become wrapped up in the American superhero archetype. Whereas, yeah. and I think that's you know partly because of Americans often seeing their government as less than effective or good intentioned. Yeah, we were we were founded in a revolution. Yeah, Canada yeah. waited a hundred years after we had our revolution, and we're just like, hey, can we uh, leave the British Empire now? And Brit- the Britain was like, okay, yeah, I guess we can have this weird like semi-mutualism relationship like technically like there's there are still queen elizabeth is still on a lot of if not all i think just most canadian coins like she's on a lot of their currency still so the canada had a much more amicable not even a parting with britain than we did with britain so it's just like a it goes down to like the core ethos of the different nations i believe like canadian superheroes you get 
like Captain Canuck is definitely more explicitly working with the Canadian government and in terms of like working with equilibrium yeah. and, and stuff like that. Even if he's not as nationalist, I feel like that might be more fitting for Canada because yeah. I think America has a particular emphasis on patriotism and nationalism that not a lot of countries really share. Yeah, but so my point is that I think old old school Captain Canuck. I mean, he was a Mountie. That's he's part of government institution. David Semple is part of the RCMP. That's again part of like the superhero is in a sense the government even when he's working outside the government sure. and importantly alpha flight who if you guys don't know i didn't know about this for a while um canadian sort of super team that marvel had back in like i think the 1970s yeah they were introduced um chris claremont and john Byrne created them with a few x-men series and they've shown up in various incarnations since then yeah but importantly um, and this is something Benjamin Wu says in, again, his master's thesis that I think I'm paraphrasing, but I think he summed it up really well. He says that the, the alpha flight was born out of like a lot of like R and D stuff with working in concert with the Canadian government. Alpha flight is very much a product of the Canadian government. They are working for law and order. They are following Ottawa's orders. You wouldn't catch a patriotic superhero. You wouldn't catch Captain America being that sort of agent for explicitly the government. He very explicitly serves quote-unquote higher ideals. Yeah. The so only, that's a the huge only organization difference. I think that Captain America or most Marvel superheroes would be affiliated with would be S.H.I.E.L.D., which is sometime, which is associated directly or indirectly with the American government, but as a fictional agency is often at arm's length from it. Yeah. So that, I would say, is the most core difference between Captain Canuck and Captain America and sort of like American superheroes and Canadian superheroes in general. Canadian superheroes are much more likely to be found working in harmony with their government. And I think that's symptomatic of Canada having a slightly less rebellious streak. Like Canada was not born out of rebellion like the U.S. was. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and honestly, I could talk for another like hour probably about that would not whether me. I know, but whether that means the superhero genre is intrinsically American and Canadian values don't, values don't really line up with that. I don't know. We may come back to that in future episodes yeah, when I think we read how more. The superhero, yeah, American superheroes versus international superheroes would be an interesting thing to cover. I think. Yeah, I really want to cover that at some point. I think that's so interesting. But we've already talked a lot, or I've already talked a lot. I won't pin this on Will. So I think we're going to have to leave off there. But I feel like that's a pretty good stopping point as well. For now, yeah. 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 I think that works. Yeah. So thanks for listening to me ramble about Canadian history for like an hour or however long this ends up being. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate it. See you guys next time. Laters. That's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at YellenABTSupers or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling-about-superheroes. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'll love it if you leave us a review as well. This week, we did not end up tacking the Canadian National Superheroes exhibition segment onto this episode because it was kind of long already, but instead we're releasing a special mini-sode on it after we visit it this Thursday in Toronto. So pay attention to our anchor page for that or to your favorite podcast platform. Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente, and you can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.